Hi there, welcome to the Pantheon Podcast. My name's Kagan, this is my friend Nick. Hey, how you going? Would you like to tell everyone anything about yourself? Um, oh, I mean, I've just done, I suppose, I'm a builder by trade. I'm really interested in um, free diving. And um, yeah, me and Kagan did kickboxing years ago. We sort of, neither of us are training these days, but um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I was recently doing a job for Kagan, uh, doing up his bathroom and stuff, and he was got yarning about a few things, and yeah, he sort of mentioned that he was starting a podcast and yeah, trying to tackle a few topics, and we sort of yarned about a few things, and it's kind of yeah, invited me on, so I thought I'd come for a chat and yeah, see how it all goes. Um, That's cool. I gl- I'm glad that we got you to do the bathroom because we hadn't really had a good conversation since like kickboxing days. Yeah, yeah, and people change and like learn more things as as they get older, and yeah, mm. so. Yeah, when I was doing yeah. kickboxing initially, um, I think you were my partner most of the time, eh? When I first yeah. started, yeah, roughly. Yeah, like I've been doing it a few more years than you had when you started, and yeah, sort of we worked on a few things, eh? And did a bit of training, and yeah, it's got yeah. some solid punches and kicks. Used <laughs> <laughs> oh, to, to have, yeah, not so much anymore. Yeah, I'm more about fighting fish these days, but yeah. <laughs> That's what, yeah, you've been um spearfishing, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. an Aussie. Yeah, yeah, recently got back from a trip overseas, yeah, went to the Coral Sea, and um, yeah, shot a few reef species. And what was it actually like? That was pretty cool, yeah, so you, like you, their, their winter is like um, our summer pretty much, out of the climate, so we were diving out of Cairns, and we went on a liverboard for about seven days, out towards the Coral Sea, so you're standing out there, the water's like 24 degrees, the visibility's like 30 metres. Holy shit! Yeah, yeah it's pretty, uh, pretty awesome got um you know quite a few various reef species so like a way more fish options than we have here you sort of have maybe five or ten target species in new zealand over there there's probably like 50 something different fish that you can oh, eat shit. so yeah, yeah. that's pretty sick i definitely want to go free diving with you that'd be mean yeah so we'll get out this summer when the water's warm enough bro and we'll um we'll do a mission yeah yeah yeah, see if we can see what gear we can get you. You'll probably be, you know, it might fit my wits, one of my wetsuits. Here we go. <laughs> I'm losing some weight, so. Some weight, bro. Yeah. <laughs> a couple inches off the waist. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we were mm. talking before about um about the Wellington protest. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Shannon and I, um, we're doing like a reaction of the documentary, the stuff documentary, Fire mm. and Fury. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so I haven't actually watched that documentary, but I'm sort of got a you know, look, you know, a few thoughts on everything. But yeah, yeah, um, you were sort of saying that the narrative of Fire and Fury was basically the that the government, sort of the government perspective, is is completely right and everything they say is true. Is that be accurate? Is that yeah. sort of the narrative of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems yeah. to be, and and um, the media itself seems to be, um, following whatever sort of um guide the government gives to how to deal with the stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you can see how a lot of people are very uh, upset about, you know, I guess essentially like all the mandates, all the regulations, everything that um, they're basically being told to do. Being, you know, if you say if you're being forced to, or you have a, you're basically being forced to be vaccinated for your job, that kind of thing. You know, it's very difficult decisions for a lot of people, and you can see how it gets to the point of, I suppose, like people calling for like a revolution and wanting to um uh, you know like i suppose essentially overthrow the government type type thing you know it can go to that extreme 
or it can you know can go it can go in different directions and mm. and i suppose a lot of anger is also directed at the media as well um and i guess it feels like a large amount of government effort and funding is like pushed towards the media um i, I think I, they're getting a big um a big increase in funding yeah coming up. yeah so you kind of you know you almost sort of think well is is most mainstream journalism bought and paid for uh and i guess what i have to quote is sort of another journalist that i've heard talk and he's kind of said um there's certain you know there's certain stories you can do and certain things you can say and that will stick and that'll get that'll get past the editor type thing and there's other mm. things that won't so it's 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 not really i wouldn't say it's not free speech but it's kind of like this if you want to keep your job if you want to progress if you, you basically have to play the game and say the right things and so we're kind of at the point where we've got like free limited speech but not completely free speech mm. Um, mm. yeah so i guess that's kind of the position that we that we're sort of in in a lot of ways i think uh like there seems to be a a conflict of interest at the heart of um at the heart of these media companies and how these journalists are meant to sort of operate yeah like a good example is in america um i believe pfizer is sponsoring a lot of media platforms yeah yeah well that then it would make sense because they're just trying to you know put the right spin on their things and they've got huge amounts of money to to spend on that kind of stuff well apparently yeah. they're spending more money on advertising now than on any like scientific development yeah so the the i think the ratio of of research to to a funding is about um two to one so they're spending almost you know twice as much money or even three times as much money on like spin as they are on research mm. yeah mm. it's a big conflict of interest like so if an, like a journalist or something wants to um criticize them uh criticize any of the groups that are sponsoring them yeah, exactly. they'll most likely be turned away by the editors and stuff and yeah, i think yeah. i think yeah. that's a similar thing that's happening in new zealand except it's the government doing the funding yeah yeah and, uh, and on a smaller scale too mm. you know like they might spend you know like fives of themselves you know might spend like five hundred thousand or say a million dollars trying to to lobby the new zealand government to you know to, to sort of further their interests here and it's it's still a very good uh like so if they if they spend a million that they get the government to buy a hundred million dollars worth of say vaccines or some other some other medicine then it's money well spent really and that, that's kind of how the lobbying model works yeah yeah russell brand talks a lot about that yeah a lot about lobbying yeah so really getting money out of complete completely getting money out of politics is probably the way forward that's um, his point of view as well actually yeah yeah you'd um, think um you'd think if you're aiming to be in one of those positions of power um the fact that you're the voice for basically everyone in the country is almost enough of a incentive mm. like taking money out of the out of the situation or or like you'd want to earn a relatively good amount but yeah, taking yeah, away yeah. like yeah. any incentives that can lead to corruption and stuff i reckon would be one of the yeah. best things because then everyone that wants to get in it to be powerful and wealthy and wealthy mm. will have that incentive taken out yeah yeah so the things to kind of remember for new zealand is that we're usually very high on the world's most uh, most least corrupt countries. So I think last year we were, New Zealand was the most least corrupt country. Mm. And so it may seem like 
you know, if you haven't really got anything to compare it to, that New Zealand is um, extremely corrupt, but it's not really compared to other places in the world. Mm. And we have probably a huge amount of huge amount of trust and goodwill between each other, and I'd say towards the government as well, um, compared to a lot of other places in the world. Mm. Growing so, up, yeah. that's the way I saw it too. Like, yeah. like yeah. there seemed to be like a genuine open discourse across sides and stuff. Mm. What I have seen lately, though, is that's slowly beginning to degenerate. I think it's like um, our political model is starting to draw more from the West. Yeah, 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 yeah. New Zealand's, you know, traditionally been, you know, fairly a fairly socialist country. Um, but yeah, we are taking more and more of those, I suppose, more and more of the American kind of points of view. I think, yeah. Especially yeah. due to, like, our connection to, um, like, United Nations and any of the, um, like, groups that, uh, span beyond borders of countries mm. all of those tend to have like an influence as well yeah yeah um but back to the the fire and fury um documentary mm. it was very how uh, one-sided um uh shannon was telling me something that i found pretty interesting which was the reason they didn't actually interview any of the people from uh, any of the people that were commenting on any of the disinformation spreaders was that they didn't actually want to give those people a platform yeah yeah, and, yeah, 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 and yeah. I found that pretty interesting because um, if if the media's argument is so cut and dry, like it's so clear, mm. and the science is so set, why not let these people make fools of themselves? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. If it's that, if it's that obvious and all that kind of stuff, um, for sure. So there's a, a quote by. Um, by Winston Churchill, when he basically says the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Um, and so, you know, to compare that to the one-sided documentary, like they really should have had some people on there with uh, those sort of viewpoints. Mm. Yeah. They did have on two women, I believe, who were protesting. Yeah. Um, one of the women that, um, that was at the protest was actually part of a small group that were sort of screaming down um, the stuff journalists to yeah. get out of the area and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they didn't really cover too much about what her uh, motives and beliefs were. Like, they did to an extent, but um, they didn't attempt to aid her in explaining, mm. like, what she's feeling around the situation and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. They'd sort of just ask her a question and then let her flail, flail around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the journalist woman turns around and like she's she almost goes on the offense and is like, well, how? Why do you think it was it would ever be okay for someone to be angry like that at someone else and mm. and all this sort of stuff? And it it's it's such like an abdication of responsibility for the journalists. Yeah. yeah. And I believe uh, some of the journalists were saying. Um, They'd never been responded to like that before, like yeah. with this much aggression. And I yeah. think that's a, I think that's a blatant lie. Mm. Uh, I, I attempted to do some journalism around Fakatane. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> I only talked to two people. Oh, okay. Well, well, <laughs> start somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so the, f I went to talk to one lady and they were basically straight away just like, oh no, we don't want to uh, talk about anything like that. Mm. Um, and at this point. All I had said was, um, I just wanted to start gathering some information and talking to people about things. Yeah. 
So immediately I was shut down and then I went into another shop and I went to talk to the, um, this lady who runs a shop and I'd actually had a really good conversation with her before. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah Shannon and I had gone in there and we, we'd had some, some political discussions and she yeah. seemed to be relatively, um, similar politically to us. Oh yeah. So, so I went in to talk to her. her. I was like, Oh, this will be cool. cool. Yeah, yeah. And as soon as I had explained to her what I was trying to do, it's, it's like, like she treated me like I was the enemy. Mm. Mm. So, so that, that was quite shocking. shocking. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, it was shocking for me, someone who hasn't engaged in that. But yeah. for it, like for someone who's actually practicing journalism, they will be used to hostility. Well, yeah. Yeah, I suppose to a point. Like it's, um, yeah, I guess it's the, it is a, you know, it's a difficult prickly subject and I guess people are, it's, it's almost in that same kind of realm of religion and politics you know things that people don't really want to talk about um mm. because <laughs> uh yeah i suppose it's like you're yeah, almost becoming a taboo subject in a way all that sort of stuff uh i think one of the the troubles with people that are really far left is you know, the idea of, of, I guess, shouting people down and cancelling people and censoring the people is that um, you don't have that, you don't have that um, uh, discussion. You don't, you don't have sort of, you know, you're essentially censoring free speech. Mm. You know, that's saying that you're so far left, you're right. Um, it kind of comes to mind in all of those sort of situations. And so it's, yeah, I, you can see how how things like that happen especially with the way that humans are kind of wired we're sort of you know we're, we're very much living in this really technologically advanced world but our brains are barely out of the stone age and you can see how in a sort of a group setting situation like the um, parliament process where it would have become an entrenched position of us against them sort of thing um, where there was no communication from anyone that the protesters really considered them like no one in government no one in power i mean winston peters went there for a look but he would you know at the time and still now he's not actually in power in government um you know no one really went there and, and talked to anyone um and i guess you sort of and it's that same thing where in that documentary they wouldn't even really mention they wouldn't even really talk to people because it, if you've already got the position that the people on the other side are completely stupid and they've got nothing valuable to say and you know you're, you're essentially already drawing you've already got this brick wall between you and there's no um you know that can only really end in violence yeah yeah, yeah well, this communication breaks down and yeah and that's you know that's what happened that's what happened as, as shannon and i sort of um noticed when watching the documentary, documentary we, we noticed those things too and um one, one of the things we um sort of came to the conclusion of was that the people that remained like because you know the protest ended in violence yeah to an extent yeah um the people that remained there were willing to stand for what they believed in but not only that they knew what was coming yeah yeah and everyone that is sort of more on the more moderate side not as aggressive they would have left as soon as they had seen that the police were um becoming activated yeah so yeah the the um the government abdicated their responsibility responsibility to look after those individuals as well to know that that's the people that remained there are the people that would have been willing to engage in something confrontational like that maybe that's what they wanted too 
so they could have that on the news and yeah. Well, the documentary. Yeah. They, they loved. They, they loved showing all of the um, fires starting and yeah, all the violence. Yeah. And I mean, there's even a, there's a, you know there's a small little conspiracy around how all that got started too. You know, whether it was a couple of agents or provocateurs that went in there and lit some tents on fire to get it started. Um, it was definitely you know the people that there's video evidence of 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 two guys going in and lighting fires, and it was definitely both those people. Like, no one else at the protest knew who they were, so it kind of leans that way. Mm. They did a little bit of a um, little false flag thing just to get things started, which is, uh, yeah. We haven't looked too much into that, but that that sounds like something worth looking into. Standard standard sort of operating procedure, really. You know, you 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 ratchet things up a notch till it gets started, and then then you're kind of, you're you're free to move in, basically. Mm. And it Mm. kind of gives the, yeah. You know, gives gives police the ability to, to you know, we have to secure the area because of the fire or whatever and you know we can we have to move people off now, you know, and that gets in there. You know, oh we've got you know, we're good to go now, so let's hit it sort of thing. I remember we were talking um when you were uh, working on our bathroom about the idea that the government is in a sense like our de facto parent. Yeah, it's, it's or yeah, like a metaphorical parent. parent. Yeah, in many ways, yeah, the government's sort of the mum and dad. Um we've sort of had that, you know, the collapse of a nuclear family. For most of human history, we'd, we would live as um, we'd live in groups of up to 150 people that we'd know intimately. Mm. Um, and, and as time's gone on, we've kind of coalesced into larger and larger groups that there is more mutual trust. You know, you can go out, you know, you could go anywhere in New Zealand, and if you buy something off someone at a shop or wherever, you're that's you know that's a form of trust and mutual exchange. Like you know that you you know I believe. In the value of that dollar, and so does that person, etc. And that, that allows for um, mutual trust and understanding, like shared shared language and religion, and all that kind of stuff helps bring people, um, you know, into larger and larger groups. But yeah, that also also what we've created with our government as it's become larger and larger and more and more structured and does more and more things for everyone. We don't we've lost kind of our our autonomy and our ability to, I suppose, make decisions for ourselves in a lot of ways. Mm. And I think, you know, some of that, you know, some of that kind of protesting and things like that is sort of pushing back against that. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah. It is. It is also, in a sense, reflective of the relationship between a parent and a child as well. Um, so you could say, like, the government was the parent in that situation, yeah, and the protesters were the children. Yeah. And they had, yeah, they had a problem. They had something that they weren't happy with that they wanted to. Um, have attention brought to and be openly discussed instead of censored, right? Yeah. So, um, it's very interesting looking at the behaviour of the way Parliament reacted to this. Like, um, uh, that guy that was in the in Parliament who like turned on the sprinklers and and started blasting music and stuff. And it's like, yeah, that was about the only communication that they got, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like, if if you if there was a child and they had a problem. And, and they, they wanted to talk to their parents, parents about it, and their parents were shutting them down about it, yeah. and like behaving in, in a similar way that the government was. We would call that bad parenting. Why well, it'd be bordering on abuse, really, wouldn't it be? You know, you're sort of you're essentially locking someone in their room and just turning the music up till they stop crying. You know, has that ever worked? Mm. Yeah. So, so I, I found, found that interesting because, because um, I, I was talking to um some women this time and they were saying that um there was no such thing as like a parenting manual when i was growing up Mm. and 
the fact is is that there actually have been and there are many parent manuals it's just they weren't as accessible back then the difference is is in this day and age all of this information is easily accessible yeah yeah. so why is it that this information is here understanding how to deal with people understanding how to actually address people's concerns and why was none of that used in that situation Mm -hmm. yeah yeah they're all you know they're all good questions and there's no um i guess obvious answers other than the fact that they you know like like i was saying before that they just didn't want to engage in any meaningful way it was just basically whatever whatever the people protesting had to say basically had no value you know Mm. whatever they had to say was yeah essentially just nothing to what the government thought so they just didn't engage yeah yeah um i guess and i guess in this way the media is almost like um the big brothers in the situation yeah like if the government's the parents the media's the big brother and imagine like a child having a problem in a family yeah the the parents saying like no locking them in the room um blasting music and stuff Mm. assuming that the child like knowing the child is going to rebel in some way Mm. but then having the older siblings tell everyone tell everyone around like uh, the neighbors and everything that the child is ridiculous and they have no idea what's going on that's like that's gaslighting that's yeah 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 it's it's yeah it's not a complete analogy but it's not bad yeah 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 yeah. it's um yeah kind of what's going on with that yeah um hmm. i'm sort of so to i don't know to maybe try and spin things on to a little bit a little bit of another topic um when it comes to cooperation right so and what we're suffering from is a lack of cooperation I think when it comes to you know the situation that we've had recently uh you know with the, with the protests and that kind of stuff um to give kind of another example of of structures where things are sort of shared more equally so <clears throat> the way that a pirate ship works is or, or you know or a way that it was was essentially that everyone on board that ship would 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 usually get a very even share and at most the captain would get two shares so if you were to compare that to how a lot of companies are structured nowadays or even how other navies worked at the time um you know the, the captain or the ceo or whoever's in charge earns disproportionately more you know sometimes up to 100 times more than the average worker in some situations and so um you know this is a sort of a kind of an analogy of cooperation between um you know different groups and how things organize so as an example so pirate ships in the 17th century they actually had quite progressive racial policies so there was um you'd have a whole mixture of of various people that were all paid by their worth um so racism wasn't really much of a factor um yeah like i was saying before the captain only ever took a half share and um, his position wasn't was only really fixed based on his performance so versus people on you know navy ships at the time were basically indentured servants and um you know they'd be getting paid you know barely a living wage and um you know, they, they were quite often people would defect to um, pirate ships to be able to have you know like a better sort of a better life and a more even type scenario in their work yeah 
So I'm sort of, you know, kind of thinking about how disparities of power relate to, I suppose, the situation that we have been having. You know, if, if, if everyone has more of an equal say um, and, and feels like they have some control of what's going on, uh, yeah, that, you know, that can lead to, I suppose, uh, you know, how would I put it? Like, you know, probably better outcomes for everyone, really. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of makes sense. Or mm, mm. probably missing a few bits, but yeah. <laughs> mm. That is quite interesting. So the navies were um, in that situation; they were like uh, run by different countries. Yeah, like, yeah. So you'd have navies run by various countries, and the um, navy sailors would be, yeah, essentially, you know, more or less indentured servants, really. So on yeah. the pirate ships, the captain earned twice as much as. The average sailor. The average sailor, but yep. they also took on the responsibility of having a less a less stable position. Yeah, yeah. So their position wasn't really fixed. It was based on their ability, um, you know, to find other ships, and they portrayed a, um, I suppose, like a like a sense of being extremely violent. But that often wasn't how it would happen. You know, they'd sort of they'd they'd basically capture a ship and. Um, they wouldn't often actually kill everyone. Mm. You know, it wouldn't mm. usually go like that. Yeah, it would be sort of they'd take the ship and and some you know some of the crew would probably want to defect to that pirate ship and things like that. And yeah, it's interesting because yeah. those who defect tend to be the individuals in society that don't feel uh, like a connection to sort of national uh, like a national connection yeah, to probably, the country. They probably wouldn't have felt that valued on their ship. A lot of those guys. So, so they tend to be, in a sense, like outcasts. And it's what I find interesting is that outcasts could be adequately managed with being paid the same, and then the person above them being paid double. Yeah, yeah that's quite. That's quite yeah, an interesting. There still needs to be a scale, because like you do need to be like when you do more, you need to be rewarded with more. Yeah. Um. To a point, but yeah, we kind of have um. I suppose inequity in, in that kind of system where you have like i was saying before where you have like ceos that are paid like 100 times what the average worker is probably even more in some cases and um you know from their perspective they'd probably say well that's just what the market pays and um yeah it kind of makes you you know think about other examples of, of business models where um ceos in very rare cases sometimes will take pay cuts to um you know, better, better manage um, things, and so, and those businesses, you know, in some cases, tend to do quite well. Mm, mm. Um, yeah. What I'm finding really interesting is that that ratio of like the the one to two, yeah, um, seem to be enough to keep individuals that are deemed as outcasts, um, functioning adequately. Yeah. And it's yeah. found that um, violence in communities seems to be exacerbated by the inequality within contained areas so if there's a city that's relatively poor homogeneously or reasonably homogeneously mm. um they will there tends to be less violence because everyone's poor you know there's yeah, there's yeah. no one really to blame it on in that situation yeah, yeah. and if there's like a, a group like a, a city and basically everyone's rich there there mm. seems to be less violence as well yeah. and crime yeah, same yeah. with both yeah if but, everything's more yeah more equal yeah for yeah sure. but when you've got like a small community with a, a, a large disparity of income, 
between mm. them. So you're sitting there in your one bedroom house with a, a family of five and you look over the fence and you can see a 10 bedroom house with two boats. Yeah. You're going to feel pretty, pretty slighted. And, and what I, and what I'm, I think where that's connecting to what you were saying was that, um, CEOs that amass like gigantic swaths of money mm. while their employees are paid quite little and not looked after. Mm. That's a situation in which I think that there would be many people um, feeling disenchanted and wanting to sort of uh, get out of that and then they'll sort of become outcasts. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now that is kind of... Um, and yeah, I guess that kind of runs through in a whole of the various you know, social aspects. Um, yeah. You know, the examples of where there are you know, greater wealth inequality, there are far higher crime rates and things like, you know, South Africa is kind of like that. You'll have one, um, you know, gated community where people are living in, you know, fair, you know, all nice homes and nice manicured streets and then literally just, you know, a couple hundred metres away and, and a large wall across and these people living in essentially slums, you know. Mm, mm. And so you have people that are so, um, such an equal society and, and, and you have people that are so desperate and destitute they're willing to basically kill anyone for what's in their pocket sort of thing. You know, and the further you go, I suppose the, I guess that's the, you know, an example of places where they have, you know, very little social net and, um, you know, things are far more unequal than they are here, as an example. Mm. Yeah. Uh, one, one of my friends who I'm hoping to get on here as well, um, he, he was born, I think he was born in South Africa. He grew up, he grew up there for a little bit. Um, mm. his parents are South African. I think they moved here, actually. Yeah. They moved here when they were... Yeah, well, some of them have got some crazy stories of the stuff that, you know, some of the guys that I've talked to, where they've had, you know, been robbed at knife point, like, multiple times, you know, had guns pulled on that kind of stuff, mm. and it's just like, wow, you know, like, the like the level of, of like, I suppose, violence and the, and the amount of stress and fear that you'd, that you'd feel living like that, yeah, you know, is not really, you know... The, the, you know there's way better ways to do things really isn't there and i suppose coming here would seem like paradise compared to a place like that mm. yeah mm. yeah you're wanting to talk about um ai yeah yeah, yeah we can throw that in the mix a bit i don't yeah. know too much about oh, ai okay. and um yeah, yeah i was wondering if you'd be able to enlighten me yeah um yeah so well, i mean they're not an expert either but um yeah it's it's a uh, it's a very interesting phenomenon that has a lot of philosophical implications and it also has a um you know host of real world stuff um you know examples would be something that was kind of coming up a couple of years ago but hasn't really progressed was um self-driving vehicles and if you can imagine how many people drive for a living and how many people could be put out of work by um you know essentially an ai or what would be considered a narrow ai where a computer's smart enough to drive a vehicle around mm. whether it be a taxi or a truck or something like that um and yeah there are examples of like mining equipment being completely autonomous um you know in some of the mines in aussie and probably in canada and america and stuff like that with these dump trucks mm. that can drive autonomously which are doing you know relatively simple things you know going from one one place you know getting loaded up and then dumping it in another place sort of thing and nowhere near as complex as driving on the road but it's still quite dangerous, you know, because you're talking about vehicles that weigh hundreds of tons and 
yeah. being automated. Yeah, yeah being completely mm. automated. You know, something that would that would run a Ute over just like it's nothing sort of thing. These mm. massive dump trucks. So, yeah, um, but that's something that hasn't really quite come to fruition yet. Um, other examples of like narrow AI or things, like say in ninety one, there was this um, computer program that was that just got smart enough to beat a chess master. And that's sort of an example of a narrow AI because it can do, it can do one task really well, but it can't do anything else. Can play um, chess, but I'll smash yeah, it, can, it and connect four. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it could it could learn that too if it was programmed to. Mm. But it, so it's not really truly an AI in that sense, but it's it's a learning algorithm because it'll play. You know, you'll take a, you'll you'll get that algorithm and you'll get it to play chess against another one, and it'll play like thousands, millions of games against it against one another, and then it'll learn. Uh, once initial rules are set up and that's sort of the i suppose once a general ai is created that can do or that can basically learn from all various sources you, know, you completely the incident it's created within a few hours it's already um, transcended anything that a human being could do because mm. it, can, it can it can run so many programs and learn so fast um yeah and so the I guess some of the implications are like the large tech companies and countries that will control uh, AI in the future will essentially have a monopoly on something that's extremely powerful, extremely valuable, and it'll it'll probably tend to further exacerbate the um, the kind of the wealth inequality that we experience. Um, one of the interesting things with it though is that a lot of the people that are creating this technology is they're they're actually um, putting it out there in an open source kind of blockchain type situation or open source sort of in a, um, a situation where other people can kind of get to it and access it and see what they're doing. Mm. So that's um, you know one of the you know example of kind of what the internet was generally was sort of created for. So to could do a little quick diversion on sort of the internet. It was I think it was first launched in like 1971 and it was initially created. So two universities could could share information. Oh, okay. Um, was they were doing, you know, various forms of research, and it kind of started from there. So it was it was really more an intranet, which is you know you you have like a so that's uh, like an, an internal, internal way. an internal network between you know you might have like in a company or something like that, mm. but then it you know it eventually expanded and you know started to become more and more. Um, available to everyone and now it's you know completely available and completely controls you know huge parts of our lives yeah um, yeah and that's kind of you know that's cool to see when when those kind of things are happening when uh, that it's being used essentially for what it was created for you know, the ability to share ideas to, to have kind of open source communication on stuff yeah um, another Another, I guess, a philosophical implication, but also a real implication of AI is once it's created, you're creating something that's immortal and a new form of intelligence. So it's yeah, so it's one of those you know, it's one of those things. If you can imagine, I guess the death has always been the great equalizer. So no matter how much wealth or power someone accumulated, eventually someone would die. Mm. You know, it might be passed on to sons or daughters or whoever, but it, you know that. That, that one person, that, that great individual that, that did all this stuff, you know, eventually they'd die and, and, and the, um, you know, their wealth and influence would slowly be filtered back down um, on broken up a little bit. Uh, yeah, with an AI, it would never die. 
And it would, yeah. So it would be a new form of intelligence that's, um, you know, completely, I suppose, superior to humans in almost every way. And, and yeah, what would it choose to do? You know, you always have those scenarios on movies like Terminator and that kind of thing. Mm. You know, where you just think, oh, they just it just wants to, you know, get rid of all humans. Um, I remember there was this um, small video by this uh, YouTube channel called Exerbia, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And um, it had like an AI wake up and then it's got humans that um, they're speaking to the AI and the AI is on sort of like a blocked off network. Yeah. And then they're like talking to it and asking it like, like, mm. is, it, is it good? Is it evil sort of thing? And it like, yeah. it says it's good. And then um, they let it, they, they open up the network, but th- that's their open network is actually contained within another network. Oh, yeah. And then it yeah. starts to learn all this stuff. And yeah. um it like finds nuke codes i think something like that like it finds out how to destroy the humans and then oh, yeah, yeah. um yeah well it thinks it has but it hasn't really yeah yeah, 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 yeah. and then yeah. um well, if it can think like, yeah. yeah then they, they basically like <laughs> it, it, it does some stupid shit they're like oh that's um oh you're trying to do this aren't you and it's like no i'm not i'm not i'm sorry i'm sorry don't kill mm. me and then they just shut it down and they get the next one and open up the next one yeah so that's really pretty nice. interesting yeah it's a pretty common trope yeah 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 so they, you know, a superior intelligence might look at us the same way that we look at, you know, the animals that we farm and, and you know, like the same way that we look at like cockroaches and ants and things like that, things mm. that we consider, you know, to be lesser beings than us. Um, you know, we, we, we would like to, you know, there's sort of a movement towards conservation, but you know, it's more like a numbers game. You don't really care about an individual wolf or like a bison or something like that, but you do, you know, we kind of care about trying to repopulate those species in various areas and putting them back into into their natural environments. And, mm. you know, an AI very may, very may well want to do the same thing, put humans back to their kind of, their, what, what would it, it would consider their natural state. I did watch some summaries of um that book that you lent me. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Sapiens, yeah. 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 Um, one of the claims the dude makes apparently is that humans were happier um, before like this technological revolution than uh, than we are now. Yeah, yeah. So he talks about an idea called the luxury trap, which started at the beginning of the agricultural revolution. So it's almost ten thousand years ago, where humans moved from bands of hunter and hunter and gatherers uh, to basically being um, you know living in a, in a single place, planting crops etc and you know the, the idea kind of being that is when you've if you can plant more crops and have a surplus of food well then you can have more you can survive uh more happily you've got you know you've got a, you've got a good food stockpile you've got good shelter um you start to control and command your environment mm. and but what tends to happen is as you as there was more food you your uh, population increased and as the population increased you needed more food um and this kind of kind of goes on and it has, and has gone on throughout time um and, and you know and it in many ways continues to sort of go on that you uh you create you create a surplus you want more then all of a sudden you need more and, and things that were were just you know nice wants become needs and and, and on it goes and it's sort of the i guess that that primary driver to to want to have a surplus whether you know where it used to be food but now is has become money or wealth that um is is still there and yeah for many people it's sort of never enough 
Mm. And I guess it's that that thing where you probably never that driver that drives humans on that that you know you want more and you want to keep accumulating stuff is that you know we never really get there. Yeah. One thing that I've so I'm writing an article. Um, I remember yeah. talking to you about a little bit. Um, yeah. my article on equity. Mm. Um, one thing I cover in that is the difference between needs and preferences, and I got this information from uh, the psychologist Marshall Rosenberg. Yeah. Um, the idea of always wanting more and never being able to be satiated. I wonder if that's actually a confusion between a need and a preference. Mm. So, um, one online source uh makes the claim that. Uh, everyone has different needs. The problem yeah. is, is the way we determine a need is yeah. based on what every single human needs to thrive and survive. Yeah. So a need is, by definition, that which we all share and we all need, mm. right? And the difference is um, your preference. So I may be hungry for for a steak. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a need, uh, my need for satiation, oh, my need yeah. for... Uh, need for food. Or need sustenance. for food, sustenance, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the word. Yeah. Um, and... My preference is steak. That's mm. what I want to yeah. meet this need. Yeah. Um, but fish will do that fine. Uh, mm. Bread will do that fine. Yeah. Um, and not being able to distinguish between a need and a preference leads to people um, claiming that they, what they need is more money. What they need is uh, a flash sports car. Mm. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what, what seems to happen is is people are trying to meet their needs through preferences mm. and in doing so, like obviously people's preferences are growing. I think that's the thing that's changed the most over the evolution of humans is, is what our preferences. And I think that connects heavily to what you were saying about luxury. Yeah. We have a, a preference for uh, a three course dinner at a restaurant instead mm. of just having some eggs on toast or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, discovering or isolating what your needs actually are and separating that from your preferences and meeting your instead of um, preferentially meeting the needs that uh, sort of give you the most the biggest dopamine hit or mm. make you feel the most good in that sense actually um, aiming at meeting all of your needs instead of preferentially um, I wonder if that would actually be in a sense a cure to um, mm. to that sort of bottomless pit idea that humans have a hole that will never yeah. be filled um, because it's also known that um, meeting your needs, like you, you, like you can aim at preference to an extent, but yeah. Yeah. Um, prioritizing your needs over your preference um, is one of the leading leading um, sort of paths to take to build gratitude. Oh, and yeah. gratitude is one of the best things you can use to sort of um, counteract that greed or yeah. counteract um, that endless need yeah. that you have. Yeah, yeah, I think um, yeah, gratitude. It's probably you know really important also having a um i suppose that self-talk where you're you're sort of telling yourself that um you know you're telling yourself positive things rather than negative stuff mm. i think it's quite important too yeah mm. yeah uh, there's also a quite an interesting um study that's been done so when it comes to determining i suppose success for people uh, the only way that they could really accurately measure it, and so this is like taking things like IQ and 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 various factors that they can test for. The most accurate way that they could measure how someone would be successful, and success is defined by 
your ability to make short term short term sacrifices for long term gains. Mm. So it's not you know it may it may be financial, it may be sporting. You know, it, there's a whole raft of things, but that this is kind of how they define success. And I think most people would would agree that in, you know success in in our society um, is would be defined by those factors and basically what they discovered was they took the they took little kids i think toddlers maybe three or four year olds is this the marshmallow study yeah they, yeah, they took them asked them a real simple question you know would you want would you like one marshmallow now or two marshmallows in, in 30 minutes mm. and the kids the two the two marshmallow kids were the ones that had that sort of innate ability to make short-term sacrifices for long-term gains um and it was irrespective of their iq and other factors it was basically just down to their um you know the kind of what you'd call grit or determination and i think that relates a, a lot towards gratitude as well um working towards the ability to i suppose fill that that void that we have in ourselves yeah yeah meeting your yeah, own meeting yeah, your needs yourself yeah. instead of needing that external yeah, thing yeah so you, and it's like once again it's something that's not really i wouldn't say it's taught um, in mainstream education a lot that kind of thing i mean mm. it's a little bit of it coming in but yeah it's interesting though because I, I believe the two children that or, or the children in that study that were able to delay their gratification mm. in that moment i think they actually checked up on all of the children from that study later yeah. on and they yeah, and yeah, the children yeah. that were able to delay gratification had marked uh, better results in their like uh, school scores and everything. Yeah, yeah, study school scores and their sport, and then later on, and, and you know, further in life, and their career paths, and and and, and you know, and their satisfaction as well when it came to like marriages and children and all that kind of stuff. You know, like in their in their general happiness, like yeah. I think there is another yeah. implication as well that um, has a large bearing on the ability to delay gratification, and that is, uh, that's sort of like your deprivation that the individual experiences. So if a, a child has been promised things in the past mm. and the the parents have not delivered or if the child um, is always left hungry after dinner, that sort of thing, mm. there'll be, there's a much higher chance that that child will um, take what they can get in the moment. Yeah. And I, like, um, I went skating down at Allendale uh, the mm. other day. Yeah. And um, uh, this little girl seemed to have quite a bit of trouble communicating and... Um, but she seemed willing to, like she wanted to be heard. She wanted to talk. Yeah. And um, so she started like saying things to us and, and um, sort of asking for attention in a sense. Yeah. And we'd give her a little bits of attention. And then what we found is that she just wanted us. She just wanted us and wanted us and yep. wanted us. Yeah. And it seemed like what was happening was that she wasn't having her needs for um, communication and to be heard and to be understood and that sort of stuff yep. met. Yep. So in that situation the one situation she could get it she was just trying to take as much yeah, as she could yeah. because there was no guarantee that we were going to be there the next day or that she mm. was going to be there or mm. that or that mm. she would go home and be able to get this need for communication met so yeah. i think that's also something that plays a big influence mm. on an individual's ability to delay gratification yeah 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 i mean but also kids are just attention piranhas you know if you if you give them a little bit of attention they always want a bit more that's true that's true <laughs> See, I noticed that because uh, there was a couple children there and, and I could distinguish between the children that would have been getting attention at home yeah. and the okay. children that weren't. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think the way I could sort of explain this is that the children that were getting attention mm. could communicate about things. They would actually be able to discuss 
things externally like actually conversate about yep. specific things whereas the children that weren't getting attention at home mm. would just be saying anything they could to get you to look at them yeah to yep. talk to them yeah yeah yeah, or remember that kid in class at school growing up, eh? That would you know do any, do and say anything for a bit of attention. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's kind of sad looking back on it. It you is. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I suppose sort of the class clown, or yeah, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Mm. I think some people thought I was a class clown, but really I was just oblivious. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, I was. I was just a little ADHD energy filled kid. Yeah. Um, I've always been a loud talker as well. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, i found it interesting that like um our brains haven't developed that much since we were like in the stone age yeah well i mean and as so as, as far as like evolutionary time goes we've we've done a huge amount in the last ten thousand years but as far as as far as the advancement of our technology and stuff but for a species it's it's not a very long time Mm. You know, it's, it's barely a, you know, because it works in generations too. So you've kind of got, you, know, you sort of need to be talking in like thousands of generations to be really making a difference to, to something. And so our, our, um, because our software has changed, which is like culture, but our mm. hardware is still, you know, we're still wired, you know, like we, like we have been, um, like we're running around on the plains of the savannah sort of thing, you know, and trying to survive in, those sort of situations and you can see how it comes out like say you watch a you know video of a situation where and there's hundreds of these out there i'm not talking about any specific one where um you say a cop's stopping someone and um it you know ends up with um you know someone being really badly hurt or killed and you can see how it how the situation escalates and it's sort of when someone keeps repeating something the same thing over and over they've already switched into like a fight or flight type part of their brain mm. and um you know that would be exactly the same as as things would happen with the protest in the world and things like that. you know all your higher functions are all just turned off you know you just basically yeah there's no way to communicate you're just gonna run or fight there's no real way to communicate or anything until you can and it's you know it's unfortunate that it kind of i suppose it kind of goes that way especially with with law enforcement because their you know their prerogative is to always escalate things until they you know until they get i suppose until they get what they want whether if it's like a police chase or if it's if it's um you know stopping someone if a person's aggressive well they, they're just going to keep ramping it up and up and up until until they win basically mm. and um yeah it's sort of you know to try and imagine a you know a scenario where where they don't do that is difficult too from an external perspective you know if you, if you want anything you think oh you know you need to stop you need to stop the bad person catch the catch the bad guy sort of thing see i i was surprisingly yeah. good at um uh what's the word sort of like downshifting situations yeah and some people are good at that you know but these you're working in your higher brain function at that point you know and if you can if you can catch yourself before you go before you, before you start thinking about things like well then that's you know that's really to your advantage you know see i think that's an important thing to bring up too because it's in that moment like you can either um, go and into into madness or you can yeah yeah whenever i didn't catch myself right when i felt like i was um right when i switched into the fight or flight mode if i didn't catch myself right then 
um, it was very difficult to save myself down the line, especially yeah. because of things like shame and ego. Like if you've yeah. already reacted, yeah, it's yeah. hard to sort of brain yourself back in and yeah, then yeah. be um, like hospi- hospitable, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's another example of just how, um, um, you know, how our brains kind of work. Mm. You know, you go into that, you go into that fight or flight state and you just, yeah, you don't have any of your higher reasoning. And um, that's when, yeah, a lot of the, a lot, of, a lot of silly things basically happen. Yeah, I wonder if um, I wonder what the correlation between mob mentality and fight or flight states are, because um, like like if you've like you get an example right, there's a cat and then there's like five other cats around them. If if three cats boost it, mm. the other two will follow instantly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've you see it quite often uh, in the ocean with fish and sharks and stuff like that. Like if you're so if you're um, you're you're burying up, so like chopping up bits of fish to try and attract other fish, um, when you're spearfishing, the uh, you know one shark by itself can be quite good, but when there's when there's another one, or an, or another fish competing for that burley, their behaviour really changes. So they they almost switch into a mode straight away where they're you know they're, they're competing with each other, and um, you know that's the same example with the cats running or all things like that. So there's there's a weird thing that happens to humans too when we're in big groups. You know, you can see videos of it in like bar fights and things like that, where just chaos erupts. You know, mm. it's like it's almost like infectious. You know, and um, anyone that's been to, you know, that what that's been to a, like a, a sporting game, where especially like in Europe and stuff like that, uh, where, where there's like thousands of people, you know, all singing the same songs and you know being outraged by the same things. There's very, there's something very strange. Oh, and there's the wave. That was like a phenomenon they yeah, used to yeah, sort of. Yeah, um, the wave is a is a prime example of of um, I guess mass. What would you call it? Hypnosis or that kind of thing. Maybe maybe do a quick explanation of what the wave is for. Oh, um, is it called the Mexican wave? Oh, are you talking about the social experiment, the wave, or the the wave? Oh, so oh, like in oh. in a stadium or oh, something. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, everyone no. will stand up and just be like, yeah, but. Yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. synchro like the synchronization between everyone as they raise their arms and it's it happens like a wave traveling across yeah, the entire yeah, stadium yeah. like yeah, yeah. everyone operating in unison yeah, being able yeah. to recognize the right moment to do that like it's something that you don't need to learn it's something you experience yeah yeah i was oh yeah when you said the wave i was kind of thinking of a different wave but um <laughs> oh well, yep so this was a um i actually did a movie about it too and it was um it was a high school uh, teacher and what he wanted to do was essentially like a little bit of a, an experiment on um it was essentially copying nazism so what he created was he created like a hand gesture can't remember exactly what it was and he created like he sort of and it was only over about a month or two months or something he created like this sort of this various very kind of insidious thing um within the within the students and um you know you kind of have this you, you create this environment where like this is kind of the program and anyone that um isn't following the program you're incentivized to um dob others in and um you know you create kind of they sort of created like a i suppose essentially like a secret police kind of you know they had like a little armband and they were they had to um you know they, they were sort of so the children weren't aware of this they whatsoever weren't aware, they but... weren't aware it was happening but he was just—he was essentially doing it as a as a proof of concept to show how people can be manipulated very mm. easily, because people will think, well, how could that happen? You know, how 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 could people do that? And he just said, oh, well, this is how it happens, and and um, 
yeah and how dangerous it can be so mm. when you first started working on our bathroom i was working on a different article um before i shifted to the the article about equity versus equality yeah yep. the initial one i was working on was bill c67 mm. where it is now in law that educational um institutions have a dobbing in um system now yeah yeah so and, and that's a very nefarious dangerous type thing you know that's that's sort of in communism and in um you know a lot of nationalists uh, oh not nationalist um fascist states that would use those kind of techniques through the secret police and and you know i guess china in a lot of ways has well this will be demonetized <laughs> um, <laughs> we don't get money yeah <laughs> Uh, you know like sort of almost like very similar to a black mirror like that social credit system you know where you're incentivized to tell on other people if they're uh, saying the wrong things mm. things like and it's it's it it can happen quite easily and um quite nefariously and, it, and the same you know it's, those kind of things could happen here too like imagine being in a situation where um people are being incentivized to i suppose dob people in that are would be considered anti-vax say or would have um views that don't support the you know they don't align exactly with the government agenda you know and and, that, and that's that's happened multiple times throughout history and, and is happening now in a lot of places you know eritrea north korea that kind of stuff you know all extreme examples of um totalitarian dictatorships where uh, people are living like that i think a dangerous thing is that it's no longer hypothetical as as i said Canada has actually put that into their uh, in yeah, like yeah, institutional yeah, exactly. educational yeah. system, yeah, yeah. and so the thing is, is there, yeah. New Zealand, uh, uh, man, the yeah, New well, Zealand Prime Minister is like that yeah, with yeah, Justin very, Trudeau. Very closely follow what happens in Canada. You know, then there's there's multiple examples of things that when New Zealand uh, follows Canada economically and in in policies as well. Um, yeah, so yeah, it, it is it is quite quite dangerous, and it's also the other thing about it too is that it always starts up with the best intentions uh you know uh, that, that the thing. path to hell is paved with good intentions yeah yeah so like that that policy is probably you know it's probably created with the idea that oh you know we need to we need to create this safe space in, in learning institutions and um, the only way we can do it is by dobbing on dobbing in people that have different opposing viewpoints to what we consider to be the right viewpoint and that's you know that's essentially you know, every time that shit's gone real badly, that's kind of how it starts. I, yeah. I don't understand how I don't understand how we're moving in the direction of policy that is comparable to the policy that caused these great tragedies. It's there's some kind of innate natural way that we try to lean towards that as people, and it's um, you know compassion. You it's i think think that's that's one of the main driving forces yeah it could be compassion it's a really difficult thing to exactly nail down because it's really difficult to study it because it's Mm. really unethical to do it there's another example of this what i'm called the stanford prison stanford prison experiment i've heard about that yeah and it's another one they made a movie about and um it had to get it had to get cut short but essentially a whole lot of college students came in some of them a lot of them were prisoners some of them were guards um started off so the students were split into yeah, prisoners yeah, and guards yeah prisoners and guards you know and it was it was being controlled externally by by someone but they were basically you know it started off as being quite quite fun and you know like oh you've got to you know you've got to do 10 push-ups 20 push-ups and then 
the um, the guy, the external moderator, said oh, to the guards, "Oh, you have to you have to discipline and control the um, prisoners." And then all of a sudden, within within just a few days, it had turned from you know like basically having a laugh and, and, and a bit of a joke to to full on full on torture and stuff to the point where I think there might have even been a fatality and they had to they had to cut the experiment short. They were going to go for a month, but it was only two weeks. I have heard that there's been quite a bit of controversy around that study. As yeah, I yeah. believe the the person who was conducting it, um, was actually like telling the guards specifically to do more like yeah, more yeah, yeah. torturous but, things. And that was probably part of the part of the way to show how easily people can be, um, I suppose, tricked or manipulated into doing things that they otherwise probably wouldn't do. I think a, a good example of that is that book um, Ordinary Men, which I still haven't read. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is the which is the example of the police force that um, was in power not in Germany but one of the neighboring countries and um, it was during the Nazi yeah uh, sort of takeover and um, they went from being like a police force that was upholding the law of their region mm. to dragging um, naked pregnant women out into the fields and killing them and their yeah. babies yeah. yeah and um there's like the, the book is written i believe by a, the psychologist who happened to be there before the stuff started happening who was monitoring the policeman's medical mm. uh med- oh, like yeah. mental states yeah yeah and he sort of documents each step as like um uh each time the government pushed for something uh the policeman allowed it to happen and mm. once you let like once you allow I guess we can say evil in this situation. Evil yeah. to take one step, it takes more steps. And if you didn't stop it when it first like rears its head, then it's more difficult to stop each step it takes. Yeah, it's a slippery and dangerous slope, and it could definitely happen again. Because um, our same, once again, our like our um, our hardware is still the same, so we're open to all that manipulation. And and you know, as a species, it can it, it could definitely happen as a society. You know, like in yeah. I think it's pretty common to attribute um all of uh all of the like natural human negative traits to culture. I think that's something common that we hear, but mm. I think I think uh, a lot of the like aggression and stuff that comes out is a disconnection between our culture and our natural like hardware as you were saying because there was a study done showing that chimps rove around in packs and if they see someone uh, see like another chimp in another pack they'll rip that one apart even if that chimp was previously part of the pack yeah. a couple years before yeah and yeah. that apparently that like did a lot of damage to uh the atheistic movement or the atheistic idea that um religion is yeah, like one of the culture. causes for yeah. aggression yeah. and my understanding of that now is that culture does not culture is not the cause of this aggression but the disconnection between culture and the reality of our bodies and our hardware seems to be a big cause for further aggression. Yeah. 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 It's that, you know, it's that tribalism. It's that us, it's that us versus them mentality. The othering, eh? The other. Yeah. Yeah. That's highly connected to, um, uh, like political standpoints and personality because politics, like political, the political spectrum is in a sense, completely driven by personality and temperament. Yeah. So, um, if you're more right-leaning, you tend to be, um, less progressive, I guess. And the, I get the idea of being progressive is being higher in openness, Hmm. which is, um, being open to intellectual ideas or concepts. And that's 
partnered with being open to new experiences so the the people with higher openness tend to be more progressive um oh shit where was i going with that another um oh another historical example i suppose when it comes to things going pear-shaped is the uh, rwandan genocide and that's something that happened like that was in the 90s you know it was fairly recent it's about um eighth oh yeah was it eight hundred thousand tutsis were killed um you know in, a, in a, over a few months uh by um hutus or it could be the other way around i could be wrong with that but um <clears throat> they had a uh a long-standing um you know tribal and, and sort of i suppose slightly racial division you know from the outside looking in you think oh they're, they're all african people of african descent but there's you know there's all schisms within um like everything within different groups and stuff like that and it just sort of i think it was a situation where you know one group held most of the power within the government within a lot of religious and and, and other organizations and um you know, most, you know, the majority of them were the business owners and they had the majority of the wealth in the country. And um, the other side was, I guess, the a sort of slightly more downtrodden and more like the kind of labouring class of people. And they kind of outnumbered the other group. And, um, yeah, I can't remember what, I can't remember which way around it was, whether it was, was it with, where it was the Tutsi that were, mo- you know, mostly in positions of power and Hutu were um, mostly um, in positions of non-power. Or well, it was the other way around, but either way, um, you know that that schism over, and it, and it takes it takes a couple of decades for that kind of to build up. It doesn't just rear its head overnight, but once it mm. started, you know, once the violence kicks off, it was just yeah, you know, it was, it was close to a million people that were killed over a really short period, and, and killed like brutally with machetes. You know, like it wasn't like a a conventional civil war. It was kind of yeah. You know, it was it's like a slaughtering hand to hand it was lynchings it was people getting hung and putting tires on their neck and lit on fire and shit like that and um you know we might think oh that's you know that's far away in a like a poor african country um but that same once again that same hardware exists in all humans and we're all similar like that so to you know that you know i'd like like to say something like it's impossible to happen here in new zealand but yeah there's a quote i heard heading that way i mean Mm. there's a quote i heard Mm. that says um nothing human is foreign to me yeah and i think that encapsulates what you're saying there yeah 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 Yeah, it is sort of quite scary but yeah Mm. i think i think there's more chance of something like that happening again than there is like less chance of it not happening Mm. because the thing is is like history tends to repeat itself it does yeah Um, yeah yeah um yeah, it could very well be that in you know a few decades' time, with the uh, effects of global warming, et cetera, that you know we may find ourselves in situations like that. Uh, it could even be that you know some external power is is trying to come, you know, like looking at New Zealand, going, oh yeah, that's you know they're a, uh, a prime producer of you know a lot of food and stuff like that. Like I think we we you know farm and create enough food for about sixty million people and export quite a lot of it. Holy Zealand, shit! You know, so. Yeah, there's more we're than, only like five million eh? yeah, exactly. just under yeah, five million yeah yeah so they might look at this country and go oh yep yep we might uh you know just push in here sort of thing and yeah like you know it, it's probably a while away something like that but it's not an impossible sort of thing to think about well, rebellion is um is driven a lot of the time by deprivation 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So um, they say that we're only nine meals away from the revolution. And, um, you know, three for me, man. I'm a hungry motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. well, nine meals is only three days. So, yeah, yeah, true. It's, yeah. Uh, can, you know, things can easily descend, descend into chaos, I suppose, if, um, yeah, those basic needs aren't being met. Mm. And especially if there's a, uh, a grievance, you know, felt grievance between people. And I think you were saying earlier that almost it's close to 40% of people don't agree with the, um, I suppose, the current narrative. As well, it were. The situation is, is that um, the government has come out saying that these, these individuals that, um, are, that believe in or are following the narrative that doesn't align with the government's narrative mm. have a disinformation or, or an information disorder. They're actually calling it, calling it a disorder now. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, one of the guys that works for the the disinformation project said that it's about 1.8 million New Zealanders, and I believe around 37 percent. Oh, 30, yeah. So, so pretty close to 40. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, historically, like 25 percent of people has been enough to um, you know, 25 percent of people on the same page has been enough to um, you know, push things in a certain direction. Even a 10 percent, like even 10 percent, if they're a loud minority. Yeah yeah for sure or even less like um mm. an example of that is uh like the transgender um lgbt it's hard to categorize it because individuals yeah. fit in different groups and yeah, yeah. and but you might th- say it's like one percent maybe or something it could be um i think it's i think it's risen a lot apparently yeah. in america um 20 of gen z identifies with that group now oh okay so that's yeah. individuals around like the age of 25 so it's definitely a larger group now but yeah, um yeah. small these small groups have made like substantial change especially like within policy and within mm. culture culture has shifted yeah so yeah. small groups can make a lot of change mm. and i think um you know a lot of it's not necessarily a bad thing you know like as a you know as a species as a, as a society we need to be um you know more inclusive more tolerant uh, more understanding of others But then there's also the, I guess the other, suppose the other side of it is, um, a lot of it is, you know, and as I've said before, you, when you're shouting people down that are coming to speak at universities because you don't agree with their point of view, uh, you're essentially creating, um, you know, you're leaning towards uh, that very thing that you're trying to stomp out. Mm. And when you're, yeah when you're saying you're trying to cancel someone because what they say uh, doesn't, you know, you don't agree with, then, you know, you, you're, you know, we're back on that same sort of path so, t- towards, you know, essentially towards like Nazism, really. It doesn't even know? fit with their own um, sort of philosophical understanding because yeah. the, the idea of sort of preaching for like inclusion and stuff, mm. inclusion and diversity, and then not being accepting of those diverse points of view yeah is is quite hypocritical and having a contradiction like that um within institutions that shift the culture like universities and stuff is really dangerous like where's the attempt to um break away from contradictions Mm. well the I suppose it's it's once again it's it's being created from a position that 
they believe that they're right and then it's a you know it's a very dangerous position to be in to think that you're right and that you know what the answer is Mm. because um i suppose there's probably nothing more dangerous than than someone that's completely sure of everything because then you won't question anything and if you believe that i think we call that narcissism well yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. but on a you know it's, it's not really working on an individual scale it's working at a scale of institutions and mm. governments and yeah so shannon was um telling me about an article um so i think there's going to be some sort of um uh group that like uh, social media and other things can join up to and they get like a tick on their channel or something saying like oh we're part of this group now yeah um and the government seemed to show skepticism towards that uh i don't know too much about it but the idea what i'm trying to say here is that the government's allowed to show skepticism when they want to yeah but anyone that shows skepticism towards the narrative that the government presents uh has an information disorder now Mm. Mm. yeah and it's sort of you know it's the same it's the same thing like we like our our suppose our western governments um will preach free speech to other nations but they'll you know they'll take certain individuals you know someone like uh, edward snowden or chelsea manning someone that's like um you know i suppose really exercising free speech and, and putting their life on the line, yeah, putting their life on the line absolutely yeah, isn't edward yeah. snowden hiding out in russia now uh, I'm not oh, I know he's hiding out somewhere. I'm sure he's in Russia, but um, yeah, doing you know doing things that you know saying and doing and saying things and releasing things that they're doing that they really don't want them to say. It's really interesting you know, how and, and um, like oh oh wait you can say we've got free speech but you can't say that. Yeah, like um, <laughs> like Julian Assange and uh, like yeah, like yeah. Edward Snowden, like yeah, yeah, Julian Assange is another good example of that. Yeah, these people yeah. um sort of blow the lid off uh, government bullshit. Yeah, yeah, and then the government can like uh, well they'll prosecute them. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, that's really strange because like these nations are meant to be sort of promoting that free speech. Well, or yeah, they all yeah. they do they do promote free speech unless it's uncovering something yeah. that that government has done it's it's free speech up to a point as long as you don't say these things who gets to decide the point <laughs> they do <laughs> yeah. well have you heard it you know about you know missing disinformation eh? disinformation is if you're spreading information that's purposely wrong to mislead people yeah misinformation is if you're spreading information that's incorrect um unknowingly or by accident yeah okay. something like that yeah. have you heard about malinformation no malinformation um was released um in the same document that had disinformation and misinformation in america when they basically said that spreaders of these three things are in a sense terrorists oh yeah yeah Yeah, so malinformation is information that is factual or based on truth Mm. that is taken out of context to um basically change someone's position on something to support something yeah yeah yeah. okay see the problem is though is it's based on truth now yeah as we talked about like um before the government is the one that will decide yeah 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 mum and dad will decide what's true and what's not and yeah so that one's really scary like the fact that like malinformation like missing disinformation you can understand that to an extent Mm. but malinformation that one's the really scary one yeah 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 
We don't hear that often talked about in New Zealand. I don't think I've heard anyone from no, the media I've actually mention you. malinformation. Yeah, I haven't heard that term. Uh, malinformation, yeah. So, there you go. <clears throat> hmm. What else is on the agenda, bro? What else we got? I'm not actually quite sure. Is there anything else you want to just want to riff on? Um... I don't know. No, I don't really got... Oh, there probably is some stuff, but nothing's coming to me at the moment. Yeah. I feel like we've covered quite a few topics. Yeah, true that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Probably been a little bit all over the place, really. <laughs> it's, uh, um, you know, it's quite a... I suppose the podcast format's quite good because it's that... You've got that long-form kind of format where you can kind of talk about different stuff. But, yeah, um, yeah. I kind of feel like some of the stuff... Some of the ideas that I've probably tried to explain, I haven't really gone into depth enough about all of them. Um, and if you haven't really sort of read or seen some of the stuff, it probably doesn't make that much sense. But yeah. I Press. think often it's um it's a call to people's interests to search into things that like to look into that stuff themselves. Yeah, well, that's true. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I've, yeah, if I've said something interesting, maybe you want to look it up and go more into it. Then yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Mm. Thanks heaps for joining us. Hope you enjoyed the show.